just like in any Bible-believing church, we consistently and regularly point you to the cross because it's all about the cross, the defining moment of history, the grace of God offered to us by faith, secured for us by Jesus going to the cross and rising from the dead. And last week, as I prayed just moments ago, we celebrated that with the Passion Week stuff when Jesus went up to Jerusalem with full knowledge of what would happen, offered himself as the Lamb of God. He went to the cross and rose from the dead, and a number of people came to Christ, gave their life to Christ for the first time. And then the vast bulk of us here, at some point earlier in our life, gave uh, and surrendered our life to Christ and received him as personal Savior and Lord. What's next? What are some of the things that God begins to do in a person's life after we've come to faith in Christ? That's what the series is we're stepping into this morning, beginning this morning for the next number of weeks. It's called Next. And it's all about what are some of those healthy next steps that God begins to point us to and invite us into as we're growing in our relationship with him. What we're going to find with every one of these steps is they always point us to the cross. Because again, it's all about the cross, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. And today, we're going to talk about your first sermon. Your first sermon. Let me pray with you for a second. Father, as we look into your word, how we invite you to be glorified through this time, we pray that you would speak to our hearts, that you would remind us of your love for us and your call on us and uh, just your desire to bless us and to use us and to be integral in every part of our life. And so, Lord, as we consider this now, we pray these things in Jesus' precious name, amen. If you have your Bible... And ask you to turn with me to Romans, which is the sixth book in the New Testament. Romans chapter 6, and I'm going to read a couple of verses there. Verse 3 and 4 of Romans chapter 6. The Apostle Paul is writing, and, and, and Romans is this great theological treatise. And he says, uh, he speaks some words of a significant theology here, which are these. Don't you know? that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. It's been one of my great privileges to often stand in the baptismal tank with people as they're about to be baptized, as I'm about to put them under the water. And my experience is most people in the tank are at least a little bit nervous. But I've always assured them, without exception, don't worry, I've never lost anybody here in the tanks. Never happened to me. Although one time it came perilously close. And that was when I was about 20 years old. It was actually the first person I've ever baptized. And it was at the last day of my pastoral internship. So you did when you're in your undergrad, you do some time of internship in a church and start to learn the ropes. 
in Ritson Road Alliance Church in Oshawa, Ontario. And just a few months previous to that, a young woman named Tracy Burnside, and Tracy was probably about 17 or 18 years of age at that time, she had given her life to Christ, and over the course of that summer, I'd have the privilege of just journeying with her as she grew in her relationship with Jesus. And now on this last Sunday before I returned home for my last year of school, uh, she was publicly declaring her relationship with Jesus through baptism, which had begun a few months earlier. Now she's putting it on public display. And so we wade into this tank, and it's like the biggest tank I've ever been in. This thing was so big, you could do laps in it. It was just huge. She goes to the mic, and she tells the story of how she invited Jesus to come into her life where she admitted her sin and her hopelessness to deal with this sin and that Jesus had come and saved her, forgiven her, and saved her, and she'd offered her life to him so that he'd be the Lord of her life. And she talked about how Jesus had changed her. It was a cool story. She was the first Christian in her whole family. And so her family, she'd invited all her family and friends to be there, and they were that, there that day. And after she finished her story, she turned and I said, Tracy, because of your public confession of Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord, which happened just not that long ago, I'm now baptizing you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, when you baptize someone, after they're done talking... Um, you're standing facing the crowd, and they turn perpendicular to you. And uh, you encourage them to put their hand on their nose so the water doesn't go up their nose. You put one hand on their back and one hand on their wrist. Now, you need to know Tracy is just this really tiny young woman. Like, I, I would figure she was about five feet tall and certainly under 100 pounds. And... I have baptized people that are, you know, that weigh 200 pounds or 300 pounds or north of that, no problem. But the thing I didn't know and the thing I didn't tell her was that she needed to bend her knees, that it's absolutely vital that you bend your knees when you're being baptized. And because of that, she got too far away from me and, and I, the angle was off and I kind of got off balance and stumbled and my hand pulled her hand away from her nose. All the water went up her nose and it was incredibly amazing how much noise a tiny young woman like that could make when Scott was drowning her. And it was just, it was incredibly loud. Everyone like sat back like that. Why did Tracy go through all of that? Why did she get up and tell her story? Why did she invite her family? Why did she invite her friends? Why did she let me virtually drown her? It begins with this. Simple obedience to Jesus. Simple obedience. Let's read about it. It's very clear. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. Turn to Matthew 28. Last week, when we were talking about resurrection, we looked at the first 10 verses of Matthew 28. Now we're going to look at the last two verses of that same chapter. Well-known verses, Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. And, and listen to what Jesus says. Now, it's important to know the context. These are among the last words that he's going to say. 
and he's sort of wrapping things up. And when you're about to, when you're about to leave, only to come back later, but when you're about to leave, you're going to hit on the key things, right? The things that you want everybody to remember, because this is really important. And so he says to them, the group that's gathered in verse 19 and 20, he says, therefore, in other words, in light of everything I've been saying and doing, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. And so Jesus establishes a pattern that he wants us all to follow. And here's the pattern. The message is shared. A person hears it, and they make an informed decision to either accept it or reject it. He's saying that if they choose to accept it and choose to believe and allow their life to be transformed and re receive grace by faith, that they enter into a discipleship process, a relationship with God launches at that point, and they begin to grow in their relationship with Jesus. Part of every discipleship process is for a person to be baptized. And this is the pattern that Jesus established that day that was to be followed and is to be followed from that point forward. It's just the biblical norm. And so Jesus, if you read this, he's just saying part of fulfilling the Great Commission is baptism. It's just the way it goes. So why? Do, it's obviously very important. If God wants this for every person that bows the knee to Christ, why is this so important? It's because at the heart of it, it's a public declaration of our new life in Christ. It looks back to that day when I received Christ as my Savior, like it was for Tracy. Just a few months before, she'd given her life to Jesus, and it was a very personal and private thing between her and God. And now publicly, she was sharing what God had done in her life. And it's just... It's an incredibly wonderful thing to do. It's a blessing on multiple levels. Let me talk to you about them. And this is at, why, at the heart of why God wants each person to do this. First of all, it's an incredible blessing because it, 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 of the power of story. Our personal story is this incredible communicator of truth. So when, you, when you're baptized and you share your story with the church, with the people that are there, with our church, for example, people that are part of the family of God already, or at the same time, there's going to be some people there at the service, which there is every week, for example, in our service, who are just on the journey. They're just there checking God out, maybe not even sure if he exists, wondering, having questions, and they haven't, they're not all in yet. They're just checking it out. But the, the gathered churches together, and baptism, just listen to me here, is among the most powerful preaching our church sees and hears. Because a person is saying, here is what Jesus has done and is doing in my life in fulfillment of the scripture. That's why I called this little talk your first sermon. 
Now, maybe you've preached before, but if you haven't, when you get into the waters of baptism and you tell the story of God and how he's transformed your life and everything he's done, you are preaching an incredibly powerful sermon because story touches people. That's why there's so many stories in the Bible. That's why Jesus would use story regularly to illustrate things. And when I'm sitting there, you know, one of the greatest privileges, one of the things I love most about being a pastor is when I get to hear people's story. And so as we're, for example, getting them ready to be baptized, because we make sure people are aware of what they're doing and, and so forth, um, part of that is we hear their story. So they get to practice telling it. And so I hear it, or I'm sitting down there if I'm not in the tank listening, or if I'm in the tank, I'm listening to their story. And it's just one of my favorite things. And when I hear that story, and the other people that are in the gathered church hear it. Several things are going on that are just so cool. One of them is it just causes me to worship, to be grateful again for the grace of God. And I just personally am encouraged and edified when that person is in the tank sharing their story. And I'm reminded, and I think this is really powerful, as they're sharing their story, that really your story is my story. Your story is my story. Now the facts, you know, how it all happened and stuff might be a little different, but at the heart of it, what Jesus has done in my life, that never changes, right? He saves us, he alone saves us, and he becomes the Lord of our life. That, that never changes, this biblical truth. And so when, I, when I'm hearing you relate what God has done, I remember that your story is my story. And I remember back to that time in my life when I gave my life to Jesus. And I say, thank you again, God, that I'm part of your family because of Christ. And the visitor that's there or the person that's just there exploring what a relationship with Jesus is like. They hear your story and they go, you know, those Christians are real people. They're not perfect because no one is, right? We're simply offered forgiveness, not based on what we've done, but based on what Jesus has done. Those Christians are real people and they have real issues in life. Because when we come to Christ, it's, it's not that Jesus removes all our problems, but he walks with us through them. And so they have real issues. And I'm beginning to understand that Christ has overcome the brokenness of this world that we live in. And this person telling their story is a powerful illustration of that. And that's inviting to me. And so really what Jesus is saying here when he tells us all to do this is he's saying... Whatever you do, don't rob the church. Don't rob the pre-Christians that are there of the opportunity to hear what God has done in your life. Now you say, well, Scott, uh, I'm really nervous. Let me just say to you, I started actively speaking in public when I was 16 years old. And I understand... I've, you know, I've, I, I've done it, I'm sure, thousands of times now. But every time I'm nervous. I'm nervous up here today. But here's one of the, of several things I've discovered as I've done this quite a bit, is that even though I'm nervous, if I'm willing to say, God, 
I'm yours. I'm willing to be used however you want. And I just offer myself to you. Would you fill me with your spirit? What I've discovered is that he helps. That he empowers. That he helps me do it. Even though I'm nervous. In addition to that, we will help you. We'll, we'll take you through a couple of classes so you understand what this is about. And we will help you prepare your story. Which is something, and you've heard me say this before, I'm going to say it again. Every, without exception, every biblical believer needs to know how to tell their story. In a way that that non-Christian, that pre-Christian you're sitting with could hear and understand and be pointed to Jesus through. Because it's just this incredible privilege. And it's going to come at some point in your life, especially if you're open to it, where, where they'll say something like this to you. You know, Scott, uh, we've been working together for so long, and, or I've been watching you. I've seen how you hang out in the cul-de-sac with people or whatever. And, there, you know, I can't put my finger on it, but there seems to be something different about you. What is it? And this is an opportunity given to you from heaven to share the story of what Jesus has done in your life. Every Christian needs to be ready for that moment. And I would just encourage you to pray and say, Lord, would you give me those kind of moments? And I've just found when I do that, he gives me lots of those kinds of moments. And so I just share very matter-of-factly, here's the story of what my life was like a little bit before, how I came to Jesus as specifically as possible, and then what Jesus has done in my life subsequent. And this is what it all revolves around. So we'll help you. If you want, you can simply read it. No, no problem. <laughs> because it's incredibly powerful. Because it's your story. And it's the truth about Jesus in you. So baptism matters to the whole church. And church, let me just say to you that when that person's doing that, Let's celebrate with them. Let's pray for this person. Let's pray supportive prayers for them. Let's, let's stand with them and encourage them for this significant action that they've taken on. And so really Jesus is saying, am I willing to humble myself and publicly side with him? See, back then when, he, when this was being unfolding, you basically were putting your life on the line, literally. Christ. So he's saying, I want you to take a public stand for me that may well cost you your life. This is not a small thing, okay? And he would not ask that of us on a whim. Am I willing to humble myself and say, Jesus, I'm ready to be used by you and I follow you now in the waters of baptism. So it matters to the church. It also matters on a very personal level in your relationship with God. We see that in the Romans chapter 6 passage we read a few minutes ago, where there's this you know, significant look into theology where Paul says, listen, when we do this, it's a powerful identification that goes on, that symbolically you're identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection with Christ. And so there's this powerful symbol, this imagery, when you're above the water and you're going under the water of, 
of passing from your old life, and there's, there's references in Scripture that you know, become a brand new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. And so you, you go under the water, you're dying to your old self, you're being washed clean symbolically, and you're rising out of the water, because you're just briefly under there, you're rising out of the water in resurrection life. And in one moment... You're, you're graphically illustrating the beauty of the cross and the darkness of sin. It's a beautiful illustration. The beauty of the cross and the darkness of sin. And it all symbolically points to the cross and to what Jesus has done in our life. And now I'm publicly declaring this. Pastor Aaron, I love his language on this. He always says, you're planting your flag. You're planting your flag. And friends, never underestimate how important this is in your life. This is a powerful moment in your walk with God. Because when difficult times come, and they will, when you're persecuted for your faith, and you will be, if you're living biblically, you will be persecuted. The scripture is really clear about that. When you're tempted to quit, you will be reminded of the day I remember that day, and I remember the day when I stood for Christ, when I was reminded that his relationship with me is unbroken, and he will never abandon me, never, and I will continue to stand with him now, no matter what. It's not unlike the, the, the imagery of the bride and groom. Just a couple weeks ago, I was at my daughter's wedding, reminded of this. Do they know all the implications when my son-in-law James and my daughter Erin, when they were making their vows to one another, do they know all the implications of what that's going to mean? Absolutely not. Do they know every temptation and challenge that is going to come their way in the years to come? Absolutely not. But very clearly as I watched it played out one more time, they loved each other. And they vowed before all of all of us, and most importantly before God, to be faithful to the end. It's very similar in the waters of baptism. Do you know all the implications of what this is going to mean in terms of what life is going to be like going forward? No. But you're taking a public stand for Christ because he first loved you, and in response to his sacrifice for you, you responded in love and acceptance to him. And now publicly you're declaring all of that to illustrate your private relationship with him. You know, when you read the Bible, the idea of an unbaptized believer is foreign. Let me just walk you through a few passages that illustrate this. And the thing I want you to notice, in every one of these passages, there's a pattern. And here's the pattern. Believe, then be baptized. Believe first, and then be baptized. It never changes. And so the first one we would come to as the church is beginning to, to evolve and to grow is in Acts chapter 2, verses 28 to 41. And it says in verse 36 there, Peter's been preaching, and they say to Peter, uh, we're cut to the heart, Peter. What should we do? And they've heard the message of Jesus, and he says, repent and be baptized. And in verse 41, it says, those who accepted the message that day were baptized, about 3,000 people. 
And he has spent some time early in one of the earlier verses, I think in about verse 38. It says, with many other words, he warned them, saves yourselves from these corrupt, this corrupt generation. So they hear the message of Jesus. They respond to it. They know that it could cost them everything, but they publicly are baptized. Move ahead to Acts chapter 8, verse 12. It says, but when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Believe, then be baptized. Now, they reference men and women there. That's very significant because in that era... Men made all the decisions. Women had no say in it. The man said, we're doing this. She was doing it too. And so for the fact that they would reference men and women in that text is huge. We look at it, we think no big deal. For them, huge. You didn't do stuff like that. Because God, and we see this clearly in the life of Christ, is very countercultural. The things that we often do, he's doing just the opposite. And he's saying in this passage, Women are equally loved and equally valued by God. And they have a personal stake in this. And they have to make a personal choice whether to receive Jesus or not. Nobody else can choose for them. And so uh, they purposely reference men and women. Individual decision. Move ahead to a little later in chapter 8 of, of Acts 8. Uh, in verse 36, it talks about the Ethiopian eunuch, who's the minister, basically the minister of finance for the nation of Ethiopia. He hears the good news of Jesus, he receives the good news of Christ, his life is changed, and then he's baptized. Not long after that. One more chapter ahead in Acts chapter 9, Saul is completely opposed to the church. He's uh, putting people in jail. For following Christ, he's having them tortured, he's having them killed. He's moving to north to Damascus to do more of the same. He has a personal encounter with Christ. His life is completely transformed. He believes that Christ is the Son of God, raised from the dead, and he converts and gives his life to Christ. And three days later, it says in verse 18 of chapter 9, he's baptized. Go ahead one more chapter to chapter 10. For the first time, the gospel is preached to the Gentiles because the gospel of Jesus Christ is available to every person. doesn't matter where they're from, the color of their skin, what language they speak, what gender they are, it's irrelevant. Jesus loves each person. So in Acts chapter 10, um, the message is shared with Cornelius and his household, and they individually make the choice to receive Christ, and they're baptized. Move ahead to chapter 16, it's in verse 14 and 15, it says, those whose hearts were opened were baptized. Then in verses 30 to 33, the story of the, of the jailer, and he's confirmed confronted powerfully with the power of the living Christ. He falls on his knees and he says, what must I do to be saved? And he's told to believe as each person in his household does. And then they're baptized. Chapter 18, the leader of the synagogue, Crispus, it says, heard with faith and believed and then was baptized. So once again, Without exception, the pattern is believe and then be baptized. The only time this didn't happen, the only time, was the thief on the cross. He gives his life to Christ in one of the most powerful conversions in all of the Bible. 
but then he dies too quickly before they can baptize him, dies later that same day. If they'd have had more time, they would have baptized him. Now, it's important to note that there isn't one clear reference to a baby being baptized in the whole Bible. It's important to note we are never, never told to be baptized and then believe. Never. It always comes to belief, trust in faith, receive Christ, then, through the waters of baptism, publicly display our faith in Christ. This is why we dedicate children here. Not unlike how Paul and Jesus were presented to the Lord at eight days of age. Actually, it's much more accurate in a sense, and this is why we call it child and family dedication. It's really mom and dad that are being dedicated. Child as well, but at the heart of it is mom and dad. Because mom and dad, when they're de up there, they're really saying, we understand this child is a gift from God. And we're publicly recognizing this. And we're asking for God to help us to bring this child to the place, to raise this child well, and to bring this child to the place where individually, because we can't make the choice for them, this child will receive Christ and help us to help that child mature and mature in their faith in Christ. And we're asking and committing ourselves to this end to be good examples, to pray for this child, to take this child to church, to talk to them about the things of God. And so really what happens at child and family dedication is you're looking forward to the day when that child will make the choice to receive Christ. Baptism looks back to the day and celebrates what Christ has already done. So someone says, well, Scott, I was baptized as a child, as a baby. What should I do? First of all, be deeply grateful to your parents. Your parents cared for you. They loved you. And they wanted God to be a part of your life. And so they stood publicly. And because of their devotion to you, they're saying, we want a prayerful, we want the people of God to pray and we want God to do a work in this person's life so that one day this child will come to faith in Christ. That one day this child will then publicly declare their faith in Christ through the waters of baptism as a believer. And so adult or believer's baptism, in no way is that a sign of disrespect to your parents. It's a way of honoring your parents, of saying thank you, mom and dad, for a godly heritage. Thank you for praying for me. Thank you for modeling the things of Jesus for me. Thank you for being that good example. And thank you that now as I make a public confession of my commitment to Christ, in a very real sense, I'm, I'm fulfilling your prayers from when I was a baby. Now, for myself personally, I was christened. My dad, who was about 34 or 35 years of age when he came to faith, he'd been baptized as an infant. And so after both my dad and I and the other members of my family actually came to faith in Christ, then as, as we followed the scripture... Then we were baptized as believers, and we told our story, and we were baptized. And we baptize people by immersion here because this is the most logical inference from Scripture. For example, baptism in the Greek, in the original language, is the word baptizo, which means literally to immerse or to dip. 
The symbolism of Romans 6 that we read earlier is clearly that of being buried under the water and coming out of the water in resurrection life. In Matthew chapter 3, Jesus was immersed. In John chapter 3, we're told that they found a place to baptize where there was plenty of water. If you want to baptize a whole crowd by sprinkling, you just need a little bottle. They found a place, which in Israel is a really hard thing to do because there's not much water. So they, they went out of their way to find a place with plenty of water. In Acts chapter 8, we're told that the Ethiopian eunuch received Christ. They talked about all the scriptures that he'd been reading. And then he says, here's water. And we're told that he goes down into the water to be baptized, to be immersed. Now, my grandfather was, I don't remember how old, but when he was in his early 90s, he had come to Christ sometime in his 80s. When he was in his early 90s, he was baptized. And they ended up sprinkling him, even though that wasn't the tradition in our church. And it was because he was old enough that he just couldn't navigate the steps to get in there, and they just thought it would be way too hard on him physically to immerse him. And because this is not a legalistic thing, checking boxes, they sprinkled him makes the best sense to immerse biblically. And this is the default pattern we follow. But that's what they did for Grandpa. You know, baptism is among my favorite services in church. It's so cool. I love hearing the stories of what God has done in a life. To see people take a public stand for Christ that they'll remember for the rest of their life. To plant their flag in a very real sense, to preach their first sermon. And in a couple weeks, we have a baptism service on May the 12th. And if you've never been baptized as a believer, the time has come. The time's come. So just write to Pastor Aaron, Aaron at udac.ca, or take one of those little cards in the pew, fill it in, hand in it at the info desk. He'll spend some time with you or someone will spend some time with you, talk to you about it so you understand what you're doing more fully, help you prepare your little talk and uh, make you ready. If you absolutely can't do it, if it's impossible in two weeks, we'll do it some other time shortly thereafter. We're happy to do this. Let me just say, At the heart of this, for some, it's an issue of surrender over control. It's a great thing to do. This is why Jesus wanted, us, wanted it and insists on it for each person. We invite you to come and follow the Lord Jesus in the waters of baptism.